0: Welcome to The Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face.
1: Chris, good day to you my friend. Da, 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 da.
2: We need we need entrance music for you. I would love entrance. Wouldn't music. that be like, yeah, is that a certain like does one have to achieve a certain status in society before society decides that, you know, we got to we got to give this person entrance music?
1: There was a movie where James Gardner and jack lemon played ex-presidents of different parties okay and they were like lost or something it's like some kidnapping it's a wild sort sort of film but it's a comedy but they talk about how they both had this experience of hearing hail to the chief played and they're like did you make words up for it yeah and the one guy's like yeah my words were hail to the chief he's the chief and he needs hailing and James carter's <laughs> like mine mine was hail to the chief if you don't he's gonna kill you <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, kind of grim i guess whatever whatever kind of gets you gets your blood pumping i guess yeah um, i wonder if
1: trump has things that he's thought of i don't know i i'm pretty sure but i doubt it you know i doubt it
2: rhymes or you know is you know kind of keeps the beat or anything like that
1: it's probably just huge <laughs> uh what's he been up so to my yeah. friend yeah we want to talk about conversion today a little bit you know so
2: interesting because I mean, you have uh, you, you know, like you are much more um, steeped in and actively participating in um, the world of faith and religion and you know I, I I actually you know I come at the world from a in in some ways ironically, given that my father was a Catholic priest, but i I come at the world from a, a bit of a more secular mindset, and yet what's been interesting for me Uh, The journey that I've been on the last, I guess, couple of years, you know, thinking about how the world is changing and how society needs to change in response to, you know, all of these drivers of some pretty fundamental shifts in information and economy and politics and society that, you know, the more I think about it and talk to people about it, the more I realize that, you know, all of those kind of systems out there that people talk about fixing are also embedded, you know, inside us in our ways of seeing the world in what we pay attention to in our values and habits and behaviors and so ultimately we are upholding them all and any kind of you know dramatic Transformation in, in the system. Anybody who wants to change the world, really, who was it? Was it Gandhi who said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world? I feel like I yeah, finally come to. Michael
1: Jackson a... said, you got to start with a man in the mirror. Although, <laughs> in Michael Jackson's like, you might have needed
2: to do a little more. Of I, maybe maybe Gandhi did get it from Michael Jackson. You know, sometimes, sometimes we're confused about the source of these quotations. Like, what was it, Marion Williamson? And it came out that you know, there was this quote that was classically ascribed to Nelson Mandela that, you know, our, our greatest fear is not that we're powerless, but that we're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and apparently that was her. So I didn't, I didn't may, maybe maybe the whole be the change Look you want to see, uh, yeah, maybe Gandhi ripped that off from, from Michael Jackson, could be. But uh, anyway, I get it now. I like it. And so for me, you know, what's, what's shifted in my mind, or at least what I'm, you know, chewing on, is whenever I hear out in society, people use the word transformation, which is like become the word right okay. cuz i guess change isn't big enough a word there aren't, it's not enough syllables to really capture the the scale of change that people feel is happening so we need to we need to you know glam it up a bit so we don't say change anymore we say transformation but you know this last week every every, every time i've been hearing that word i've i've in my mind i've been wondering but is it more is would it be closer to conversion what needs to happen what ought to happen and and as soon as that clicked in my head that oh ha I thought well I got to ask God about this because I feel like this is your territory much <laughs> much more than it is mine I mean you've clearly you've clearly been through a few <laughs>
1: Yeah, I have. I have. I, I feel like I've helped people through them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that – it's funny. I mean, I could just tell you the story. That, like, Yeah, uh, tell me the story. But I was a kid, and I was probably like in the fourth or fifth grade or something. And these two kids I, I used to play with were older than me. Like, they were in middle school. They were like two years older. Ryan Green and Tommy Bachman. And Tommy was like the smartest kid I knew. He was pretty good at baseball. He could throw a curveball. He knew algebra. They both went to middle school, so they had like – what, you have seven teachers in your own locker? That just doesn't exist. I mean, like, it was so, these were like men of the world to me, especially Tommy. And one day we were like playing Army or something on October afternoon, like we had our little toy guns in the woods or something. And Tommy, in a kind of a judgmental way or something, but he, he was part of a fundamentalist Bible church in the next town over, which I, I mean, all of this was exotic to me. And when I say <laughs> fundamentalist, I don't, I don't, Mean it in it in a. I'm using it in the technical term. Like, I there's what a, what is the technical term? Then? well, there's a there's a footnote in a book, a 600 page book about epistemology warrant and warranted belief by Al, Alvin Plantinga, and he uses the term fundamentalist early in the introduction. It's a pretty big Oxford Press book, and there's a footnote, and he says. I use this in the technical term, not the academic term. When you call someone a fundamentalist in the academy, it usually means something akin to ignorant sumbitch. S-U-M-B-I. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't mean that. I mean, Yeah, that I, is much more of an academic term, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. He probably was part of a, okay. a very conservative North American Christian church, which was kind of separatistic. It was not, it, you know, it was sort of, it believed in sort of the imminent return of Christ and a, a sort of particular way of reading the Bible that, that, is not the sort of majority tradition in the okay. West or something, but it's, okay. but it's become very popular the past 200, 200 years or so in certain circles. And he told me that I would be saved if I accept Jesus as my personal Lord and savior. And if Tommy told me anything, I would have done it. And I remember I ran home <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> like three doors down and my mom stops me, you know, boy running in the door. What, what are you doing? What? And I'm like, we didn't really go to church much. We remember this Methodist church, but we didn't really go very often. Uh, so I'm just like, uh, uh, do you know, Tommy Blackburn told me if you accept Jesus Christ, your personal Lord Savior, go to heaven when you die. And my mom goes, Yeah, I knew that. And I was like, Why didn't you? Tell me? And I ran up. I really said that. And I ran up, and I don't shut you think my this door. is important information to be Exactly. To I was like, well, Why are you holding it? So I, I. I I thought this isn't personal enough. So I I closed my door and then I got in my closet and I prayed and I had this kind of weird, almost mystical experience. And I'm not akin to those kinds of things. I know people that I really believe in from several traditions have those. It's not, but something happened to me and it was a long time developing that. And I, you know, the faith I developed was nothing like Tommy's. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're, I mean, I think he he went to a fundamentalist college and I think became an accountant and stuff. And I mean, I, but I, so we're just not, uh, you know, I know some people that still know him and I, but, but I, I, that was something real. And there have been multiple sort of smaller conversions that have been emotional, intellectual subsequent to that, like that, that charred my path. But that's sort of like, I, I did, I wasn't raised in a family where religious faith and, and a kind of vibrant religious faith that interpreted your life was, was expected or prized or encouraged. So that was a different kind of thing, but you know. I think though that for any conversion, significant conversion, religious or 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 otherwise, I think three at least three things happen. Right, you, you have whatever you're converting to has to be intellectually plausible. You you have to be it has to either fit into your existing sort of plausibility structure, or you have to be willing to change your plausibility structure to accommodate the new beliefs. Right, so there's one part that's okay. Th- th-
2: so this is already really interesting. That so and and you list it first. So part of it, because I think that right there. You know, people are like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Because, uh, again, for me who I, – and I admit I don't think I've, you know, used the word aloud yet in my life uh, until this week I started to feel like this connects to yeah. some issues. But, but so you – and I, I think that if I – you know, if you asked people to kind of, you know, come up with a word cloud of, you know, free association with the word conversion, I, 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 I doubt that many would start with words like intellectual or rational it would and so it's interesting that you start with that
1: yeah well i just think that it has to like like your plausibility structure which that we all walk around with we, we're things that like we think are possible not possible hmm. you know i mean some people a religious conversion or something or some people you maybe it's a political kind of conversion and your plausibility structure doesn't allow that government can do any good or something only you know something so either your plausibility structure has to give a little bit or it's given in some ways to allow this idea and or it gets in and and rearranges the plausibility structure. So I think some of it is intellectual, some of it is existential. So it's something in your life. There's there's a season in life where the change can take root where it couldn't before. This is why you know the kind of village atheist thing we talk about the the problem of evil is the is the is the is this sort of Achilles heel of religious faith. Well, yes and no because I've seen just as many people brought to faith through suffering and and tragedy and evil as turned away from it. You know, so it depends on mm. how you hit it. You know, mm. like it's it, so. So I think there's an intellectual, and existential, and the third thing I think depends on how like you see so- it. Yeah, yeah, it's the sociology of knowledge thing. Like you become like we know this like from a lot of 20th century social science. You you become like the people you like, hang around with in your tribe, and so. Oftentimes, there's this social component too. That people that you admire or connect with have these ideas, or are part of this way of being, or way of thinking, or way of walking in the world. And because of those relationships, you you actually the the conversion can be fostered. It's funny because people will say like sometimes to say, well. You know, if you weren't born in the United States, uh, you know, if you were born in, in, in Tibet or something, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. I would give it, yeah, well, if you were born in Madagascar, you probably wouldn't be an atheist. I mean, <laughs> like there, is, there is a social dimension. It's not hmm. determinative. Hmm. Completely, but it, 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 it's, it's a huge sort of gravitational pull there relationally and sociologically. So I think hmm. when a conversion happens, hmm. whether it's religious or whether it's a radical sort of political or worldview kind of shift or something, it's usually an interplay of those three things. There's a plausibility structure that's, that's changes or, or allows something in that it didn't allow before or never considered. There's an existential sort of. Priming of the pump where that can happen. And usually there's some sort of social influence where some people have, have, you know, it's really interesting. You look at the history of the early church, it grew by, for the first several, several centuries, at something like 30% a decade, which is a, a just astronomical. what I mean,
2: Sorry, what grew it? Oh, the early church. The
1: early church. Right. Yeah, it grew like, but mm-hmm. some of it was just like they, you know, the plagues would hit, right? And even like one of the big plagues, Galen the physician is leaving town. And you see Galen leave, oh, shit, you know, this must really be bad. But Actually, it wasn't that bad, and if people just got taken care of, it was like severe flu sometimes. If they just got taken care of, they would recover, and then the Christians often stayed to care for the sick when everybody else fled, Hmm. and so then when they got better, the plague ended. There were all these new Christians just because they were the people that were around and were taking care of them. All right, well, why'd you do this? So so I think that that those three things— and and they di- they interplay differently for every for different people. I think for some people the social thing is more determinative. Other people the existential. Other people the intellectual. There's always an interplay of all three, but often one is at the forefront or something. And so I think that's how like conversions tend to happen, mm. right? Like that's mm. how it shifts. And then like I'll just say one more thing because I was thinking about this because you primed the pump for me. So I, I this one last story I'll tell from. From Western history of Western civilization, so in you know when the Roman Empire gets sacked, right at the, in the uh, I guess like we're talking like turn of the of the fourth fifth century, there's some like reactions to this. There's as you know in the early fourth century when Christianity becomes mainstream and Constantine
2: right kind of the state religion,
1: right? He he enfranchises it, and in, in, in the century it goes from being a marginal kind of thing. It was odd to something that's the mainstream normative thing. And there were a lot of people that were really critical of of that because they're like, well, yeah, it it really took something to be a Christian before. And now, you know, we don't have enough priests to even baptize everybody. You know, (laughs) they thought, well, the church is becoming kind of watered down. Hmm. And there's Hmm. this one guy, Silvanus. So when the empire started to teeter and and when Rome gets that guy, this one priest Silvanus says, because a lot of people said, well, see, when we weren't Christians, the Rome was impregnable, but now... Because we turned to Christianity, the gods judged us. And Sylvania's like, no, 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 no. It's not that because of that, it's because we weren't good enough Christians. And so, had we been a lot more stringent and more moral and more pure, this wouldn't have happened, mm. right? And so there's this sort of dialogue about why this happened. Then you have people like St. Jerome, famous translator of the Latin Vulgate. He just sees, he doesn't think like that we can sort of preach, the, the, get, get holy again and, and, and fix the empire. He thinks, oh no, the fact that the empire is teetering is a sign that Christ is returning. So he just goes to Jerusalem. He's like, well, I'm going to see Christ first and just translate <laughs> the Vulgate and stuff like that and just translate the Bible. So you have this sort of fight or flight Response right that that if Rome falls the world's over and so it's either we got to stop Rome from decaying or, or this is
2: the sign we've been looking for or this is yeah
1: right so Saint Augustine in the wake of this writes mm-hmm. one of the most important books in the history of Western thought the City of God and his thought is no there's two cities there's the city of of man the city of the world uh, which and there's the city of God, which is on a pilgrimage. And so the citizens of the city of God exist in the city of the world. And we co and we co-work on projects like fixing aqueducts and farming and all these things. But we do it for different reasons because we see the ultimate peace is the peace to come. Hmm. And so no one empire right, is really the city of God. That can only be brought at the at the fullness of time, the end of history. So he kind of thought, we're always in a pilgrimage in this life. And he thought, well, Who knows what will happen? Maybe Rome will recover. Maybe we won't. If we don't, then we'll have to Christianize our new masters. And so Augustine comes up with this philosophy of history that makes space for massive societal change, not shipwrecking the faith and not and not Mm. keeping the faithful trying to whip up yesteryear in a sort of morality play. Right. He almost he he
2: almost divides human history and says there's two histories going on here. And one is secular and one is spiritual and and the spiritual one goes on and has to, you know, interact with the secular, but but you know, periods of collapse or flourishing in the secular world are are, you know, I, I guess just change what the what the current emphasis of the project of the spiritual right, exactly, pyramid is. Exactly.
1: exactly, so, yes. Mm. So he comes up with a, a sort of way of looking at history mm. that keeps the faith going to today. I mean like it wouldn't I mean Augustine is so you know Thomas Aquinas quotes in the summa quotes Augustine 2240 times or something and never disagrees with him. Uh, like I mean so I got but Augustine laid so much of the seedbed for so much of western intellectual history hmm. and and that's a conversion. Like I mean he had and it's funny cuz you can hear of Augustine's conversion in the Confessions which is amazing. But also there's another kind of conversion and he brings societally a, a, a different kind of understanding of history that, that clears the way for living beyond this catastrophic change of the decay of Rome, of the Roman Empire and that sort of civilization. So I think that hmm. that those kinds of conversions are, are key. And and I think, you know, these are you know, but they're also hard. And I think you you can't ever force them. Oftentimes they have to be more received than achieved. You know, because like, you know, there's this great saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I think conversion is often like that.
2: Hmm. Because it's interesting. I mean, so I've got a thousand questions now, um, and I don't know in what order to ask them. I mean, one, I guess on this last note about, you know, do you receive it? Do you achieve it? And the question I had written in my mind, well, no, I'd written it down in my notebook about five minutes ago is, um, you know, how do you convert People, because there is also this kind of, you know, it's it's a pilgrimage of my own making, or is it a project upon people? Uh, and it, I mean, it sounds like, um, and I guess my starting point would be to assume that that it's actually there is there is no the only true conversion is one that we make ourselves. That you know, a forced conversion, you know, to be converted to something is 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 you know, it may be about the adoption of the. Of the trappings of it, of the wrapping of it, but it—it—it's—it's it's not. But the conversion is somehow a, a, a profoundly inner process as well. And so, so I don't know. That's just a. a
1: yeah, thought. it has to be because so much. I mean, but because I think conversions are so dr- often disorienting, right? And mm. and so you don't usually undergo them completely willfully, although not in constraint. I mean, not that someone converts forces you to, but I'm saying. Your life is such that hmm. the ground starts shifting. Right, you just said and, there's
2: this existential aspect to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you can't force that on somebody. Hmm. Like, like, they have to, for real deep conversions, again, they're more received. Hmm. They're, they're, they, they, they can't, you know, you often, it's hard to account for it. It almost feels like you, it, you were, you know, like Stanley Harawas, the great ethicist at Duke, says, great traditions, you don't feel like you chose them, you feel like they chose you. And I think there's something to that.
2: I suppose then the next question that I have is – so I I know – so I've never read Augustine, The City of God. Sounds like I need to. You, know, you might have to – It's a very long book. <laughs> yeah. I would say
1: you could skip the first at least – 12 chapters and be okay because the first 12 chapters are like he's basically going through all the sort of deficiencies of the ancient religions and philosophies and why they're not adequate it's amazing because a lot of the stuff like there's this guy varro who chronicled all these ancient religions and varro we don't have varro's work we just know varro from augustine okay. like, well, there's a lot it. of that in, so it's yeah. there's a lot book is a political scientist book 19 is where you want to start.
2: okay good thanks very much i put that in the show notes for me because i'm only going to have time to read that but like so now i'm i'm fascinated with this this move this philosophical move that he makes in the history of western thought to kind of almost like give us another dimension in which to play in and and to release to release sort of our entire psyche and our souls fate from what happens in you know, the political realm. So it sounds like you're saying that, you know, nowadays I might talk quite freely about sort of the secular and the other, but that it was in in, in Western thought it was really Augustine who made that break for us and said that there are these separate spheres um, or at least sort of gave each sphere some freedom to sort of, you know, go its own way. And now I suppose then the question for me that arises from that is, but what's the relationship between them? and And you know to what extent is is conversion involved in in helping us, I think maybe to, because uh, you talk about uh, you know this existential priming of the pump that needs to happen, and you know, the intellectual plausibility of it and the social influence. And it seems to me that there is something in the tension between these two that that conversion almost tries to be like the radical reconciliation of the tension between sort of what is happening in the world, in my world, and what is happening in in my inner world, right? Sort of the, the outer world and the yeah. inner world. Yeah,
1: Hmm. yeah, and I mean, I think for Augustine, what he offers, which I think is still something I think is helpful, and I I find it orienting. Like he thinks that you know, you because you're on this pilgrimage, you participate. You're neither a sort of withdraw person, like the sort of Amish or the sectarian fundamentalist, and sort of hey, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Nor are you the kind of crusading evangelical. You see in America right now with Donald Trump and the Moral Majority, both of those are sort of—they don't hold the, the tenuous pilgrim nature of things. That 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 one is sort of dismisses the world, and the other sort of makes too much of it. In the sense of, you know, I mean, if it's interesting, if you ever have a friendship that where you have to cut off the friendship because the the friendship, the person you're just too much for them. Right? Yeah, or, I was, I was, I was
2: actually. This is this is good that you bring this
1: up. Our last conversation. Yeah, because the thing is, like, if a friendship or a dating relationship, if if it becomes more than it possibly can, you lose not only deep transcendent things, but you lose the the penultimate good that friendship itself can be when you try to make it an ultimate good. And so, for Augustine, you know, one minimizes the world too much and 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 its significance, and the other sort of makes everything an ultimate good rather than a penultimate good. So Augustine sort of advocates a, a sort of loving the world and being and seeking the world's good as loving neighbor and loving God and all these made, and yet not override there are certain things. Like for instance, my prime example is torture. There's no, there's no peace that torture preserves that's worth doing because the cost to our soul to do it is too ultimate, right? Like, so, mm. so security is not an ultimate good. It's a penultimate good, but there are things we ought not to do for security to secure our well-being. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really been helpful to me. But but on a on a parallel kind of thing, I am always interested in in conversions of any kind. So like, you know, when you listen to somebody like Charles Cronhammer who died with blessed memory recently, but a sort of liberal sort of guy in the seventies psychiatrist who became a sort of neocon, you know, and, and and became one of the leading sort of conservative voices in the commentariat. That fascinates me when that happens, right? When you see somebody switch
2: right? And so I like realized that. that I had my entire intellectual framework was just wrong. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'm going to flip this way because I really think that there's a greater good in taking the other side of the argument that I've been arguing for for so long. Yeah, and that's, that's always
1: interesting to me. Those hmm. people are always so intriguing to me because I think it's so hard to make a shift like that. And usually the stories are so interesting. It, it's interesting what happened on the ground.
2: Right, like what know, was the, head, the, the crisis? Heart, the there must have been, yeah, yeah, to lead to that. Especially when, if you've been sort of on one side of an argument or a position for so long, then then you have a society, uh, you have like a social affirmation around you, people who share that view who support it, to um, that that insulates you from the you know the the, the counter arguments, and 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 that raises the the personal cost to then um you know change change your view change your politics because you are you know you're turning friends into enemies inevitably when when you do that yeah i think you know th- so that's very interesting because you know as, as you think about a lot of i think the the tensions in in societal systems in the world today um you, you, you get a lot of fixed positions on things, right? I mean, to be very crude and sort of Marxist about it, you got kind of, you know, labor's view on these things, like automation. And you've got capital's view on these things, right? Maybe you've got government's view. And, you know, if you're in one of those camps, right, if I'm sort of, you know, head of a large corporation or if I'm head of a labor union or something like that, it's you know, my position is pretty fixed. And 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 the costs of flipping you know, as the CEO, to say, you know what, uh, you know, these people are right. Like, we've just got to stop replacing people with machines because the big picture—if we all do this—then no consumers are going to have any money to spend anymore, and we're all going to be screwed. <laughs> or, yeah, right. or, or for yeah. the union to say, you know what, like, you know, those guys on the other side are right. I mean, like, the union model is stuck in the industrial age, and it's an entirely new world, and we've got we've got to blow up the whole system and reconfigure where you know where um decent work is guaranteed in yeah, in our society yeah. and 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 both of those you know there's there's so much validity to explore um on both sides of that but but you know it, there is so much cost associated with um the kind of conversion you know the ideological conversion let's say that that would represent, you know, me as a China scholar, I can think about, you know, within, you know, mainland China. I mean, I, 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 you, you can imagine if you're sort of a senior party executive, if, if, if you decide that, no, you know, there's just some things that we're doing here that I just think this is fundamentally wrong. I mean, I get it, but I also just completely can't accept it and support it anymore. Well, you know, there, you know, to, to, to convert ideologically, is the costs are so high, right? It's not just, a. I mean, for sure your job is over, you're probably going to be imprisoned, I mean, but also your family. I mean, there's all sorts of penalties and sanctions against you by the community that supports your perspective. And yet we live in this moment where it seems that, you know, we do kind of need to take, you know, long, hard, honest, searching looks at, you know, the other perspectives, on this world that we're in Um, and, 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 you know, well, and look at it until we can see that. What, what is the truth in there that maybe I need to bring back? Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one helpful metaphor for me about this is like, and I'll go back to something. That I think that I I generally think of it in religious terms, but I think it would apply to any kind of conversion, intellectual, you know, worldview kind of thing. Like there are, and I'm thinking this is usually fundamentalist Christians, but I guess not exclusively so. This part, but most of the time I see this in pretty conservative Christians. Their worldview, their belief system, is like a Jenga game. You know the game Jenga where you you start piling these wooden pegs and you pile up a tower, and then what happens is once you use all the pegs. You start pulling them out, right, and make it higher and higher. And the person that loses is the person that pulls out the peg that topples the wooden tower. So so when, when you use all the pegs, right, it gets pretty fragile. And I think any one peg then could topple the tower. A lot of conservative Christians I know, very, not, and that sounds stigmatizing because a, a lot are very sophisticated intellectually and stuff, but there's a kind of fundamentalist, conservative sort of Christianity where the people, every single belief is like a peg in the jenga again. Whether it's whether Jonah was literally swallowed by a whale, the age of the <laughs> earth, the resurrection of Christ, okay. love of neighbor, okay. everything. You pull any one thing. of them and the whole thing topples down. And the whole thing can topple, right? Mm. And as opposed to kind of like, mm. I try to, I hope that sort of the way I put together stuff is a lot more like a wedding cake, where like the stuff that like is the foundation is at the bottom, right? Some things I believe about God and Jesus. Then there's like other stuff like, you know, and, and as you get, further up you know the layers get smaller and less foundational so that 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 there's you can play with those middle and higher layers and still remake the cake as opposed to the jenga game once one thing you can't really change it very easily right and so i think that and i think that that's the case for a lot of our Mm. ways of seeing in the world like what are things that we believe that are pretty core commitments that we, we could we could change but we'd have to bake a new cake and what are things that we actually are not as essential and could be remade and still be a remade cake but still have the same layers, so we wouldn't have to scrap the whole thing? And that kind of indication, I think, that kind of sort of inventory, if we have the moments where we can take it because we get a glimpse of, of, of these things, that enables us to bracket some things and be open to sort of at least smaller conversions or at least having our own sort of worldview and, and way of seeing and being in the world changed a little bit without scrapping the whole thing. Mm. And sometimes you just do have to scrap the whole thing. But I think that's sort of kind of, you know, what are the baseline things and what are things that are a little more tangen- tangential that I can play around with and it's not the end of the world. I think knowing that kind of stuff is helpful.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a, that's just as an aside. That's a fun metaphor to think of. I so I like very clearly the metaphor of the Jenga game where the tower gets pretty high and 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 then the argument is or the belief is that every every block I- is critical. And so there is just no, um, there's no movement. Within and you have within to protect blo- every block. Yeah, yeah you have I mean, to protect he- every block. And then, and then I, I, wedding cake, I, so I feel like we can work on that metaphor. I, I, that's not the metaphor that comes to mind for me, but I don't know a better metaphor at the moment. I mean, there's almost like, I, I'm sure if we had a physicist here, he would immediately start talking about, you know, the structure of an atom. and you've right, got like these, You've got these electron shells, like in the nucleus, this is like the cord. If you change that, then it's a different atom. Or yeah. it's a different element, right? But, but, um, but you can have you know these sort of concentric spheres of uh, of electrons, and you know in the outer spheres they're they're almost freely interchanging, and it's part of that. It's part of that ability to to exchange uh, with others that enables you to form these interesting bonds and relationships and molecules and kind of more. Economy. So, so maybe that would be a metaphor, or just something around. I remember, and again, I know I've talked about him before, but uh, there's a Oxford political theorist, Michael Frieden, who wrote this book called, I think it was called, like, Ideology and Political Theory, and and he talked about ideologies as exactly this, that they are. You know there are some core commitments that make an ideology an ideology, and if you change that, then it's no longer liberalism or it's no longer conservatism. But then around that core, and so and and he he agrees too. It's well, it's a thick book, but it's the long project to kind of inventory what are these core yeah. commitments, um, and then outside of that core, there's a lot of kind of like adjacent concepts right which you know, are kind of they're, they're related you know they're they're logically related to the core but they're not necessary in the same way and so you know that's where you tend to get a lot of evolution in you know what does it mean to be a liberal or what does it mean to be a conservative is in is in sort of some exchanging and evolution of the the kind of the wider sphere of um, of related commitments and i think that you know logically that logically that makes sense for people and then what becomes really really difficult I think is to is to see the difference, right? The, okay, you're threatening me on something, but that's okay because it doesn't threaten me in a deeper way. Um, in a in a very practical way, like I see this a lot in in business meetings. You know, if you got like eight people around a table and you're trying to decide, so what do we do? And and I think that you know it. I think we're cultured into it to like to argue every point and. And there's a kind of, you know, there's often a meeting culture. Well, if we just talk about it and argue about it long enough, then we'll all come to agreement. And, you know, what you find in in practice is a lot of the time agreement is way too strong and objective for a meeting. Like if agreement is you and I need to have to assign the same priority to this list of things, we might never get there. Uh, and so you know when I get into these meetings that go on forever and ever and ever i I usually talk about well okay like let's let's clarify what are we trying to get to here and 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 I don't think we need to get to full agreement. I think that what we're trying to get to is alignment, and for me, alignment is uh look you know, if I've got a list of things and you've got a list of things, as long as the list is the same, I'm pretty relaxed about what you've ranked number one and what I've ranked number one. As long as I know that you're not going to undercut me if I go and do three, four, and five, or if I do my number one first, as long as it's on your list, that's fine. So we don't have to have complete agreement in every respect. It's enough that it's enough that we, we go out of this room willing to support one another in doing these things. And then we can kind of we can kind of move on. But I think that there is just, and I, I see it like in, in that very practical example, we we don't have um, an instinct, a habit of asking ourselves, you know, how strongly do I need the world to agree with this versus how much am I happy to go along with?
1: Do you know that book Good to Great by Jim Collins? I know it. I,
2: I've probably read it at some point, but it's been a long it's time. It's such a
1: great book. Okay. You know, it's basically I think he was at Harvard Business School and they're studying
2: Yeah, the like what made great, great companies
1: corporations great. compared to good ones. Not great to bad, but but what's the good corporation and what's the great one? So what's the one that consistently outperforms even it, the good people in its field? And you know, he found that one of the things they all had in common was that they were able to get this flywheel kind of like the kind of that in the center of these three circles, right? Like one was like what are what are we passionate about? The other was, Mm. what can we be best in the world at? And the other was, what drives our resource engine? Like, how do we make money or profit or this or that? And in the center of that, and he would talk about, like, Walgreens wanted, CVS was the good pharmacy. Walgreens was the great one. And he said, Walgreens decided, like, they wanted to be the most convenient drugstore. And they had all these, like, food counters in some of their stores. They got rid of them all. Because it didn't go with the most convenient drugstore. But they would spend, like, $2 million to move a Walgreens from the middle of the block to the end of the block for six parking spaces or seven, because that's convenience. So they would, mm-hmm. you know, th- so they would just like, they were able to sort of hone in on, on some things that were essential to who they were and other stuff was of Adi And that kind of, I mean, cause then there's more room for agree agreement, uh, disagreement, right? When you have a, a, a smaller list of what the essence of the thing is. Right. I love that book. <laughs> I got to reread it. It's great. It's it's so hopeful. It, it's so yeah, it's incredibly helpful. where so and what what
2: got me onto you know really wanting to spend an hour and talk to you about conversion is that I think that right now we're in a moment where there's just a lot of conversation in the world about what needs to change out there, and I, I and and there is definitely some. I'm not saying there isn't, but I don't feel that enough of us, enough of the time, when we talk about a change that's needed out there, are also like fully thinking and understanding that it also what i'm what I'm asking the world to change out there also implies a change in me yeah and 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 I think that that's that's the helpful work at least in my um thinking about these issues right now that that talking about conversion maybe helps me to do is to to recognize that that there is this uh, dualism in our reality and I can't change the world without I can't change the world without changing myself I mean I think that you know this so this uh, Gandhi quote about be the change you want to see in the world I mean, it just sounds lovely and you know and it starts with you and so you know you can model those changes um and I, I don't know how to complete the sentence, but I feel like even you know I've I've you know there was probably a time when that was in my signature line like 20 years ago or something like that, and and at the time I don't think I fully appreciated that that was that was actually a, a pretty you know deep statement about what reality is, and I, I mean there's a lot of I think you know sort of righteous warriors in 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 society today. Uh, and i i think that that's an important archetype and does all sorts of uh things to create energy and 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 useful mutation in society and that's wonderful um but i think a lot of it too is very externally oriented and you know you need to change and you need to fix and you know you guys are all doing this wrong and and i i i think that there is i think that the next evolution that has to happen is a kind of um uh, now I'm going to say things I don't know that I really think, but you know, like an equal violence upon ourselves, and and maybe that's way too strong a word. But you know, some of the stuff that you talked about in in sort of what are the criteria for conversion and how you know you you almost you don't do it willfully. It sounds like you're kind of suggesting that in a way it it is a violent act upon the self. Maybe not in a masochistic way, but in a you know you were probably happier <laughs> before before you realized you needed to undergo a conversion. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's, it's, it's really interesting. There's this great quote by Carl Jung. It's from Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Of course, the great Swiss psychoanalyst. Uh, he says, the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook on life. That I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are all within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? What then? As a rule, the Christian's attitude is then reversed. There is no longer any question of love or long suffering. We say to the brother within us, raka, which means kind of anger, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide it from the world. We refuse to admit ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. I I think that is so profound because I think if if you, it's funny, I was recently talking to a lawyer who's an atheist and we were, and we're, you know, fond of each other. (laughs) I was just going to say, what did you talk about? (laughs) Well, we're talking about what we both think is sort of so important is two lessons that really change reality. When you realize there's almost nothing you can control in this life and when you can forgive and accept yourself. And those two things, if somebody realizes there's very little they can control, because most, I think the opposite of love is control. And most of our anxiety, a lot of our anxiety is managed by attempting to control things. So if I tell a story where they're the people that are wrong and we're the people that are right, automatically I've I've gotten some control over, it's a false and superficial kind of control, but now I've created a story where I'm, Kind of important and, and, and control the players. Right. And that, you know, so show me somebody that really fights that tendency and show me somebody that can accept themselves, not in narcissism, but really accept themselves warts and all, right? Sees themselves in their frailty, fragility, the good, the bad, the ugly. I don't care what their ideology is. They'll probably be somebody that is a blessing in the world to be around. Right. <laughs> like, like, show me somebody that needs to control things and can't accept themselves for you know something like who they really are that's probably a tough person to be around even if i agree with them on a bunch of issues very interesting Uh, (laughs) i this is coming from someone who generally doesn't meet a situation that they don't or at least not tempted to control although although i'm not super type a but but all of us do it it's just so react it's just part of our dna right because the world's complicated and 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 it feels more powerful and less anxious to be in control Although I I'd agree it's a false kind of control that ultimately creates more anxiety but it's sort of like it's sort of like an opioid it, it, it creates a short-term relief of pain for a long-term deleterious reality and so I feel
2: like you know it's interesting you you talk about Carl Jung because you realize how you know to some extent uh, every generation needs to kind of you know like up figure it all out right you, you can't just You can't just sort of read it and receive it and know it, Um, that, you know, most knowledge just cannot be um, codified and transferred through, like, books and letters and documentaries and TV specials that... That when all we're consuming is the output, in in some ways we're we're kind of just eating the scraps left over from the banquet, and the banquet is 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 the experience and the journey and the production of 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 the knowledge and and the insights. So you know we've all got to kind of go through these 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 journeys to discover some truths that you know maybe have you know that have been discovered millions of times before already, and and but they have they they aren't yet our truths, and and I feel like you know listening to you quote Carl Jung that you know once again what i think what becomes obvious in our own time is that sort of the the, the next big step is some kind of integration of our consciousness yeah. that that you know we still really do live in a world where you know some people are doing like real practical stuff right like i'm i'm you know saving lives or i'm building companies or i'm creating wealth or you know whatever it is but it's countable it's practical whatever that means it's it, 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 it is conferred the status of reality by everyone and nobody really disputes that that's, that's real. And then there is all this other stuff around what is going on in, in our bodies, in our minds, in our soul that, you know, ultimately expresses in the stuff that everybody recognizes as real, but it isn't, con- it isn't, it isn't conferred the status of reality in the same way until it is expressed and codified and all that other stuff. And, and, and especially in a moment like now where, where so much of the conversation and attention seems to be changing the stuff out there, you know, somehow achieving an integration between the two. I mean, that's got to be one of the big, 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 big projects. Um, just in, in, in human consciousness over the next, you know, like not 10 years, more like probably a couple of hundred years like that, that I think is sort of our Renaissance project that right now we're kind of, you know, it still is disintegrated, right? Like, so we're getting like, people are into yoga and into meditation and mindfulness and all this stuff. But, 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 you know, at most kind of work on ourselves and to change our reality, not really seriously because, you know, very few people I think do it with the belief that if I'm doing this, you know, this meditation, I'm, I'm fixing the world's problems out there. Is um, we just don't have any kind of uh, any kind of belief framework or even conceptual framework to understand how those two things are really related.
1: Yeah. Now I think we know a lot more about the world data wise, but we're more alienated. I mean, you look at Aristotle; he knew a lot less. In one sense in one sense, about the world than we do. And yet he thinks mathematics, rhetoric, ethics, politics, biology. He, he undertakes all these things in an integrated fashion, like he sees it as a whole. And I think that he was at home in the world. I mean, it's funny because there's this, you know, the famous School of Athens painting, right, where Plato is pointing up. I know. Have, have, have you have you seen
2: it? Have you seen the original yeah, The yeah. Papal Apartments?
1: I've never seen the original, oh, but I've just tuned yeah, down.
2: no, I've been there. I've stood in front of it. It's, oh it's man. fantastic!
1: That's but that's you know Aristotle's pointing down, right, like mm-hmm. at the world. At players point, Aristotle's at home in the world largely because he 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 wants the whole. Like there's something about the whole, that, and I think you're right. Like that's the that so many people feel alienated and disintegrated in the world we live in, even though we know so much, we have so much access to so much data that it doesn't make us feel more at home in the world.
2: So data, uh, this, this will have to be another big conversation. Um, So I've been doing more and more work with a friend of mine who is AI scientist. Um, We do a number of workshops with the ministry of defense here in the UK, just helping them wrap their head around artificial intelligence and what it means and stuff like that. But but, uh, but at the core, he's a data scientist. And, and so we have these like, long philosophical conversations about, about data. And you know, I think any educated person has kind of you know, knows or at least has heard this trope that you know, data is biased and, 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 and so we can't just um, rely upon data, but there's a reality beyond the data. Uh, and, and he has a very concise way of describing it. He says that you know data, anytime you're producing data, you are, you are simplifying reality. That, that any, any collection of data, any production of data is a simplification. You're, you're capturing a piece of something and, and saying, I'm going to pay attention to that. So it's a simplification. And then what we do with that data is we generalize. So anything that's data-driven is a process of simplification and then generalization. Now, what is that process? That's basically stereotyping, right? <laughs> right? What is stereotyping? Yeah. It's you simplify you know, all white people, you know, so what, he's a white person, Scott, and then you generalize. So all white people are podcasters, I guess. Right? Yeah. And and so, you know, to the extent that we're a data-driven world, we're a stereotypical world. We're a stereotypical yeah. world. And, and, yeah. and, and so I think that that's really helped, like, wow, okay. So, you know, all of the kind of thinking uh, and being that society is doing to try to sort of get out of its own stereotypes yeah. can be applied to our data-driven reality as well. And and it also kind of helps one to think about that to the extent that we are data driven and that we're using sort of artificial intelligence and algorithms more and more, we are reinforcing stereotypes because it ultimately derives from a process that is first simplify and second generalize. Um, and so, how do we how do we kind of reach beyond the simplification? And, 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 and sort of drink from the fire hydrant of life in all its complexity, I think is, is a really big question in itself. And yeah, and I can't, I, I want to make some kind of eloquent, eloquent tie a bow and how that relates back to, to, um, to conversion. Um, But maybe, maybe part of, part of, I think the, the, the process of conversion that, that, I guess we all need to think about is 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 really just this kind of fundamental question of um, how do I integrate sort of um, what is going on in my inner world and what is going on in the outer world and 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 like how do how do I be present to kind of the full awesome enormity of that question and and. It, and, and then I think like two questions follow from that. Like one is, so if I'm a person who is strongly oriented about like the, the outer world has to change, what am I implying about the, the corresponding change in my inner world? And kind of vice versa. If I was like, you know, uh, my inner world has to completely change. Well, then, you know, maybe there's an implication, positive or negative, for what that implies for, for the rest of us, for, for the outer world. Anyway, things to think about.
1: Yeah, man, it's it's interesting. Richard Rohr, who's a interesting sort of he's a Franciscan who writes all sorts of interesting stuff on spirituality, psychology. But he runs a, a center in New Mexico, I think, called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And so the idea is that a lot of religious orders at the time of the Franciscans, when they were started, were either action-oriented or con- or contemplative, right? So they're either doing a lot of stuff in the world, or they were sort of praying, reflecting, thinking. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, some of it, so much of it is in the in the interplay of action and contemplation.
2: Right. You're either, you're either, I don't know, as a monk, you're either sort of making war for the glory of God or making beer, I suppose. Yeah.
1: So. <laughs> I'd be for making beer. Well, I don't know. A bit of both. <laughs> Well, my friend, it's always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I hope that our listeners are experiencing the fullness of life and its complexity and beauty.
2: I, I like it. I mean, I, I never know where these conversations are going to go. Um, and, and, I, I. and I think that's the point because now my head is buzzing. Me too. All right. Take it easy, my friend.
0: Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.